Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, rights group hits Israel with explosive charge, apartheid. You don't need to be a linguist to think there's something leading about the New York Times' initial choice of headline for a report from a human rights organization detailing how Israel's daily grinding suppression of Palestinian rights in the occupied territories actually constitutes a crime. But where elite media present a frozen, he said, she said, never the twain shall meet debate, more and more people see a different way forward. We'll get an update from Ahmed Abuzned, executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. Also on the show, corporate media will have you believing there's just no reasonable answer to your simple questions about how we could have a world where people are dying from a pandemic at the same time as vaccines exist. How we navigate this crisis has to do with media's elevation of experts like Bill Gates, who, divorce distractions aside, raises serious questions about why we allow billionaires, just because they're billionaires, to set policy on something as important as public health. We'll talk about that with James Love, Director of Knowledge Ecology International. It's a lot of show. We're going to get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. If there is a reality for which U.S. corporate news media have a rigid template, it's that of Palestine and Israel. We get leaden language like that of a recent New York Times story. Quote, Israeli officials argue that if Palestinians do not have their own state, they have only themselves to blame, having repeatedly rejected offers of statehood, though Palestinians considered the offers untenable. They blame Palestinian leaders for abandoning peace talks. Palestinians say the reverse is true. Close quote. That the frame can be static but not balanced is reflected in the Reuters report on Sheikh Jarrah, the East Jerusalem neighborhood where Palestinians are being evicted from their homes by court rulings favoring settlers. It gets to the next to last paragraph before noting that, quote, most countries regard settlements that Israel has built there as illegal, close quote. But the world is changing. And the complexity of understanding about Palestine and Israel is part of that, stale corporate media storytelling notwithstanding. How does that energy and new thinking translate to political change? Ahmed Abuzned is executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Ahmed Abuzned. Thank you, Janine. Good to be here with you. Well, the news, of course, is always different. Right now, it's Sheikh Jarrah. It's the ravages of 
COVID in the Gaza Strip. And it's this Human Rights Watch report that said that Israel has passed a threshold that the suppression of Palestinian rights answers to the description of apartheid. They quite defensively said, we're not saying it's like South Africa. You know, apartheid doesn't legally describe states. It describes actions. But the response to that description, how dare they, how dare they use that word, shows how important language and framing can be. And with that, I'm interested in work that I've seen about framing that centers human rights for Palestinians in the conflict resolution conversation. So just broadly, what are your thoughts about the state of U.S. public understanding on Palestine, and and do you feel it changing? Yeah, that's a good way to start the conversation. I think the conversation has shifted. I think that decades of activism and organizing from Palestinian solidarity organizations here in the U.S. and Palestinian organizations here in the U.S. have led us to this point where now we have folks in U.S. Congress supporting positions that the grassroots has been calling for for decades. And that's very important because we often see that legislators or elected officials are forced to change their positions based on the will of the people. And what we've also seen over the last few years is a new generation of elected officials who've grown up as a part of progressive activists and organizing circles that have welcomed Palestinian freedom and justice as a core part of their organizing ideology. Mm -hmm. And so while I'm saying that, I also would say that there's such a long way to go. I don't think the average American really understands what it means when their politicians wax poetic about their allegiance or support to Israel, either during presidential campaigns or when bills come up in Congress. I don't think the average American truly understands what Israel is and what it's been doing to the Palestinian people and how our tax dollars are actually aiding in human rights abuses. So the fact that Betty McCollum introduced H.R. 2590 is huge. It's historic. The fact that we have so many co-sponsors signing on to join the effort is historic. But the reality is we have such a long way to go to make sure that U.S. tax dollars aren't actively being utilized in the enforcement of an apartheid system and settler colonialism today. Last thing I'll just wrap, because it, it really is on my mind, is everything that's happening in Sheikh Jarrah right now is really, really heartbreaking to witness. But on another level, it's unfortunate that we have to see video footage to be affirming of what Palestinians have been saying for decades. There's a monstrosity to settler colonialism that sometimes words or even interviews can't capture. But when you see videos of settlers proudly proclaiming that they would steal the land because if not them, someone else would steal it, or videos with women and children and activists who are engaging in nonviolent resistance in front of their homes, when you see those people being brutalized, arrested, knees on their necks, it's incredibly, incredibly infuriating. And so I, I just want to lift up the people of Sheikh Jarrah right now and the surrounding communities in East Jerusalem and all over, of course, Palestine, because this really what we've seen in Sheikh Jarrah is a microcosm of what we've experienced for the last 70 plus years. So I'll stop there. 
for the opening. And thank you. It's in a way it's analogous to this Human Rights Watch report, which news media accounts are sort of saying it's amazing. I think a New York Times piece called it explosive. And then somewhere in it, they say, well, actually, this builds on the work and the statements and the testimony of lots of groups over lots of years, you know, so it's new and it's not new. And there ought to be a way for news media to convey that. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, you know, what we've seen is an unwillingness to really uh, show the perspective inside of the Palestinian people. And sometimes when it does make it to a, a major media outlet or market, it's, it's really watered down. And we've all, as Palestinian advocates, been through that process. You know, we'll pitch an op-ed and, you know, we'll get so many revisions or, you know, we just won't hear back and the op-ed would not have the opportunity to be placed. And so we have something to say. We've been saying it, but unfortunately, major media outlets have been unwilling to take the leap and actually hear the Palestinian people and hear our story and share our stories. Well, I saw a great conversation that you were part of hosted by the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee with Nora Khat and Ajamu Dillahunt about Palestinian solidarity with black communities and just kind of putting things in an international context, connecting us, you know. And you were, I, I didn't mention earlier, you're co-founder of Dream Defenders, which I know informs your work. These aren't connections that news media make, you know, between Palestinians and African-Americans. They obscure them, actually. But people see those connections, right? That international connection, that across-border connection. That People see that even if media hide it. That's right. And I think we're seeing new opportunities for that through social media. In fact, in the summer uprisings in Ferguson, Social media played a huge role in connecting Palestinian activists and black activists over the shared experience of being tear gas. It was literally in the moment live tweeting support from Palestinians on the ground saying to their counterparts in Ferguson, this is how you resist. This is the direction you should run in. This is what you should wash your eyes out with. And really, that was born out of a genuine sentiment of solidarity. And and what's most beautiful and and what we like to highlight at Dream Defenders is that the work that we were doing, and again, the work that so many others have been doing, is a part of a historic connection between the Black Freedom Movement, the Black Power Movement, and the Palestinian Liberation Movement. This relationship has existed for decades, and folks like Alice Walker and Angela Davis have been mentioning that to us. But also, you can look at the record of the Black Panther Party, who were unapologetic about their stance on Palestine, and and similarly organizations like SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which certainly was a part of a a lot of controversy when they made their statement on Palestine. So we we know this is a part of a legacy, a rich tradition in, in fighting for all peoples across the world, all colonized peoples, all peoples who have been victims of imperialism to be able to join together and envision a better future for us all. Well, I just wanted finally to give you an opportunity in terms of talking about positive interventions to talk about decolonized Palestine, to talk about that resource collection, that that project. What is that about and how do you hope that folks will use that? What kind of intervention do you see that serving? Even, I believe, AOC was tweeting 
just the other day about Puerto Rico, and people are talking a lot about statehood as, as one of the solutions, but she mentioned decolonization as a necessary part of the conversation as it relates to Puerto Rico. And similarly, when we think about Israel and Palestine, we can't simply suggest that Palestinian people should just be taken within into the system of Zionism and incorporated into that system, because until we decolonize the root cause of the oppression, the root cause of the inequity, the root cause of the injustice, then we're really just going to be bringing more people into an oppressive state. And an analogy that comes to mind is when Dr. King suggested in his later years that he feared that he had actually marshaled his people into a burning house. And so when that applies to Israel and Palestine, we have to think about decolonizing the very structures that privilege Jews over non-Jews, the very structures that allow for settlers to walk into homes right now in East Jerusalem and take those homes, the very structures that allow for the West Bank settlements to have access to as much water as they need. Meanwhile, the nearby Palestinian communities have a rationing of the water. And so these are all structures that need to be abolished if we're to truly see a reality on the ground that fosters an environment where, again, Jews and non-Jews can live happily side by side, equally enjoying the Holy Land that we all cherish so much. But Zionism is what is in the way of that possibility, and so we must decolonize and envision a future where we can actually be free and just and human. We've been speaking with Ahmed Abuzhned. He's executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. You can find their work online at uscpr.org. Ahmed Abuzhned, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. A recent New York Times story, pressure mounts to lift patent protections on coronavirus vaccines, reported that President Biden and drug makers face demands from, quote, liberal activists and global leaders, close quote, to suspend intellectual property rights on vaccines as people continue to die and suffer myriad long-term harms from a virus for which vaccines exist. It's possible to overwork Plato's metaphor of shadows on the cave wall, where you get caught up in the image of the image of the thing and lose track of the real. But when you read, quote, The debate on waiving an international intellectual property agreement that protects pharmaceutical trade secrets is both a political and a practical problem for President Biden, who has vowed to restore the U.S. as a leader in global health, close quote. You might wonder where the people are, the dead and the sick and the ones who don't even know they're sick and their families and loved ones. There is assuredly a human interest story to be found elsewhere, maybe with big, poignant photographs. But what's lost by not bringing those voices into this straight news story, where an investment banker is cited on the terrible, terrible precedent opening access to vaccine production would set. Quote, what it would say to the industry is, don't work on anything that we really care about, because if you do, we're just going to take it away from you. Close quote. And then finally, 
What's this all to do with Bill Gates? Joining us now to put it together is James Love, Director of Knowledge Ecology International. He joins us by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jamie Love. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Well, we're recording on May 6th, and things are shifting as we speak. There has been, I understand, a waiver on those intellectual property rights. But I'll ask you then just to kind of drop us in where we're at. You know, um, that, that same New York Times story, which I'm just using to stand in for a lot of coverage, talked about debate inside the White House, you know, that some advisors to President Biden say there's a moral imperative to act, you know, to get more vaccines out to more people. But, quote, others say spilling closely guarded but highly complex trade secrets into the open would do nothing to expand the global supply of vaccines, close quote. So that seems to be the gist of the argument. I wonder, before you even talk about Bill Gates. Can you talk about this idea that, oh, everybody wants everyone to get vaccines, but somehow loosening patent protections or IP rights isn't the way to get there? The times, sorry, you talked about that there's two different things that we're talking about. One are the issue of the patents themselves, which are not secret. Patents are granted, they're published, and anyone can read them. That's one of the important things about a patent. Trade secrets are things where those have to do with the know-how, how to manufacture a vaccine. And those things are often kept secret by a company. So in the current environment where you're trying to increase the, the, the manufacturing and the supply of vaccines so you can vaccinate more people around the world and do it faster, both of these things are important. The patent is an exclusive right. It, it, it allows somebody that has ownership of an invention to prevent anyone but themselves from practicing that invention. So that can make it illegal to manufacture a vaccine, for example. If you acquire somehow, either by paying for the patent or having the government override the patent right through a compulsory license to that patent, where the government forces the owner of the patent to give a license to someone to manufacture, then you still are faced with this problem of, do you know how to manufacture it? Where's the know-how? And that'll often involve a lot of things that you could describe in some cases as trade secrets. So both of these things are important for scaling the, the vaccine response. Well, so then what about the idea that allowing access to them actually wouldn't change the global supply of vaccines, which is an argument that's been put forward by, among other people, Bill Gates, who, as you've written and talked about recently, is a real powerful force in this sphere. I think most people would agree that if you somehow got rid of the barriers that patents present by forcing people that, that own the patent interventions to allow third-party generic manufacturers to use those inventions to make a generic vaccine and also share the know-how that that would, in fact, definitely expand the production and supply of vaccines. I think that what Bill Gates' opinion is that that's a bad idea. He would argue that breaking down the the strong protection of patent rights and know-how would be bad in some ways because he thinks the private ownership of both the know-how and the inventions it's a positive. He thinks that uh, what makes the world go around. He's a strong advocate of strong monopolies on both inventions and, and know-how. He thinks that's necessary in order to get private investment. But it's a pretty weak argument in, in the particular case because every single vaccine that's on the market today has had the backing of governments in the development. Even the Pfizer vaccine 
which the Pfizer CEO likes to claim didn't get any research contracts in the U.S. They started out with 400 million euros from Germany and another 100 million in support from the European Commission and a $1.95 billion advanced purchase contract from the United States. And that's not really completely a story of free enterprise. That's that's a story of governments really putting money into developing the vaccine. For, for Moderna's vaccine, for the Novavax vaccine, for the Johnson Johnson vaccine, and for the AstraZeneca vaccine, all of those other vaccines had even more support from governments. And you can say the same thing about some of the vaccines in development or from other countries like uh, Russia or Cuba. What you have right now is uh, a lot of government money that's gone into vaccine development being privatized by a handful of companies. And those companies saying, you know, we're going to decide who's allowed to manufacture and who's not allowed to manufacture and how fast things go and what prices we want to charge. But there's massive economic dislocation worldwide. You have kids out of school. You have people losing businesses. You have people getting evicted, defaulting on loans, mental health problems and everything else. And the companies, it's not like they're not making any money. Pfizer this year says they're going to make $26 billion in selling their vaccine. Moderna claims they're going to make about $20 billion selling a vaccine that the U.S. government paid for. And the, the CEO of Moderna said now to be worth over $5 billion. So I, I don't think we have to really worry too much about these companies not making any money. And not being inspired to do more or to innovate or whatever supposedly the inhibition is going to be. In the beginning of the pandemic, most of the companies, with the notable exception of Pfizer, but a number of the companies claimed that they were going to operate in a nonprofit basis. As we go deeper and deeper in the pandemic, and now Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson, even AstraZeneca are all talking about raising prices. In some cases, they're throwing on numbers like a tenfold increase in the price of the products. As we move down the road, Pfizer suggests you might need to be vaccinated every single year. When you're talking about vaccinating the entire planet, it becomes uh, pretty expensive. Well, let me ask you, there's plenty to be said about how being wealthy, however you get there, evidently conveys expertise, at least according to U.S. news media and to many other actors in (laughs) society. Part of the reason that people have a kind of distorted or misleading understanding of the balance of arguments in terms of vaccinating people has to do with media coverage and the outsized voices of people like Bill Gates. I I wanted to ask you just finally about media coverage. You know, I mean, if we're talking about Gates, he's an expert on malaria. He's an expert on public education. Now he's an expert on vaccines. And we definitely, if you just look at sources, you know, I'm not sure the voices we're hearing are the voices that we actually necessarily need to hear. What's your thinking on that? Well, there's the song, If I Was a Rich Man, which is the notion that people think just because you're rich, you must know. And that's one issue that you have. But it's more than that. Gates, personally, and his foundation, which has some of his money, spends a huge amount of money on public relations. They fund a lot of media organizations. They give money to BBC. They give money to lots of organizations that cover public health. And so they tend to give very favorable coverage to the projects that Gates is involved in. They offer money to all sorts of organizations, whether or not they take it or not, so it's out there. We were once uh, approached one publication 
the Washington Monthly about doing a story that involved Gates' support of media organizations. And the reporter came back. He said he talked to his editors. And this was a really a small niche publication in Washington, D.C., one that we liked, but it wasn't really a, a major one. And, and the editor said, that's a great story, but we also have a grant application out to the Gates Foundation, so we, we're just not going to write it. Yeah. And there's that kind of problem. And then there's the fact that not just Gates personally, his expertise, but his organization, they have consultants, they have organizations they fund that work on vaccines. He plays an important role in CEPI and in COVAX, two of the organizations who are, play a role in development of, and, and distribution of vaccines infectious diseases. He has uh, consulting firms like McKinsey or Boston Consulting Group that work with him. And he knows the CEOs of companies. He has a lot of contacts and things like that. So when the pandemic hit, very few people in government knew anything about vaccines or anything about infectious diseases. And so Gates is a famous guy. He has some expertise. So people would like, you know, what does he have to say? And because he was giving away a fair amount of money or managing money People like Warren Buffett were donating money. He seemed like he must be a pretty honest broker because he's pretty free of any kind of conflict, mm -hmm. unlike a company. But Gates himself has an ideological connection to strong intellectual property rights ever since he was in college. He's always thought that strong intellectual property rights and strong privatization of government-funded research were good things, not bad things. He's been focused on that his entire life. And I don't think people realize how radical he is on those views. Even during the height of the AIDS pandemic, when there was very few people getting access to treatment, he was trying to block every effort to expand access to generic HIV drugs, despite the fact that there was probably 9,000 people a day dying from the disease at the time. So here we are, fast forward, it's a pandemic, it's COVID. And he's telling people, no, no, don't worry about things. We've got the manufacturing all ready to go. We've worked with all the best people, all the best companies. We know more about this. The, the people that are, want more open sourcing of the vaccine are anti-capitalist, nothing activists. You know, listen to me, I, I give you better advice. So that was sort of the early role he was doing. And then he started to use his surrogates, like the Center for Global Development and other groups, to lobby against the TRIPS waiver. He personally started lobbying against it. And when he was interviewed on Sky News about a different issue than the patent issue. He was asked about the know-how issue. He said he was opposed to sharing the recipe or the know-how how to make a vaccine with developing countries and more broadly making it more public. And I think that's a ridiculously dangerous position to take because the companies that are manufacturing vaccines right now are not remotely close to meeting demand. And if you go at the pace that they prefer, which is to keep the technology closer and control the pricing mechanisms, You'll have a slower rollout that exposes us to risks of new variants. And it means people that have less power and less money around the world are the people, you know, last in line. And that line's going to be pretty long if you don't speed up the production. So it's been difficult because he's an outsized voice. And I think Gates is a smart guy. He's not the only smart guy around or a smart woman around. I think people need to listen to other views. And actually, Gates has sort of a mental block about these issues. And so... Some of his arguments just don't add up. All right, then we'll end there for now with an eye towards tracking it as we go forward. We've been speaking with James Love. He's director of Knowledge Ecology International there online at keionline.org. Thank you so much, Jamie Love, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you very much.
that's Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. My name's Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.